be in Mark chapter 2. If you would stand in reading the word with me, I'll read. You can follow along. I'll be in, I'll be in the New King James Version. You might have a different version, which is, is good. You just start to get some different highlights in different areas as you look at different translations. As long as we're going through the word of God, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, getting the whole counsel of God, we're safe. Amen? So in, in Mark chapter 2, we have the story of the healing of the paralytic. I've titled it, Power on Earth to Forgive Sins, the Gospel. So let me read it, and then uh, I'll pray, and we'll ask the Lord to bless. And he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, so when they had broken through, they let, down on the, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose, he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed. In fact, that word amazed means they're out of their minds. I mean, so incredible, as you can imagine. They were amazed or out of their minds and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So, Lord, we're thankful you came and you demonstrated to a world lost in sin, to those who were interested and those who had no interest at all. You came to live your life perfectly in order to go to a cross and die there to complete the work saving us from our sin, forgiving us as only you can. And so we love you, Lord. We are praying your blessing over this, thing, this word that I've prepared this morning. We pray for anyone who is here or in the sound of my voice, who's hearing your word you draw, and don't know you, that you draw them to yourself as you said you would. Draw them. May they know, Lord, their need May they acknowledge it. May they repent of their sin, turn from their old ways, and receive you as their Savior, even this morning as we go through the word. So bless, I pray now, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You can be seated. So this story in Mark chapter 2 is also found in Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 5. It's a really fun story, as you can imagine. If, if, I mean, they're out of their minds with what Jesus did, but it's, it's just a great story. Mark gives us a quick-paced snapshot view of Jesus' ministry, moving us, moving us along with short stories that are packed with a punch. In the next five snapshots, Mark brings to the forefront the growing animosity and hatred of the religious leaders against Jesus. And he does this in the next five little snapshots. Those snapshots this morning have to do with forgiveness, with eating with tax collectors and sinners, with fasting, with not, why are you... Disciples not fast. They're critical of the Lord. 
with picking grain. Why are they doing what is not lawful? So they're continually nitpicking with Jesus and challenging him. And then the fifth one is the healing. Is it lawful, Jesus asked, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to save life or what? So they came against him twice about the Sabbath. So we'll be looking at those snapshots. In the expositor's Bible commentary, he writes, quote, it is highly unlikely that these incidents happened in chronological sequence or even come out of the same period in Jesus' ministry. Mark brought them together because they have a common theme, conflict with the religious authorities, unquote. So three things, if it helps you as far as this passage, the gospel, the power on earth to forgive sins. Number one, the power of preaching the gospel. Say amen. The power of preaching the gospel. Secondly, the power of the faith of a friend. Say amen to that one too. Why not? Third, the power of the forgiveness of sins. That we have been forgiven through Jesus Christ for all of our sins, our crimes, if you will, against a holy, righteous God through his sacrifice on the cross. So it says in verse 1, again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days. Now, we know from Mark chapter 145, look at that verse. However, he, that is the cleansed leper, went out and began to proclaim it freely. So Jesus heals the leper, saying, don't tell anyone. He goes out and tells everyone. He spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. So no longer could Jesus go to them as he really wanted to. Now he had to go out to deserted places, and it says he was outside in deserted places. So here it seems that, and it says when it was heard that he was in the house. So he came back in probably to Peter and Andrew's house. In fact, that word he's in the house is a definite house. It's a specific house. I believe it was Andrew and Peter's house. So it says, now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew in verse 29. So probably coming back to the same house. He comes in, however he did that. But then he's there, jam-packed. It didn't last long before they found out Jesus was in their house again. So they all gathered. Absolutely no space to squeeze in, to even get in through the door, even from the door. It just started crowding out. Now, it was culturally accepted, it was expected, actually, that people would show up uninvited. So that was just a normal part of their culture, an open-door hospitality. So that's what was going on. Now, this is is what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. Though he's unable to get to him physically, Jesus is going to minister to them spiritually. How? Through the Word of God. So they can hear, maybe can't see, but they can hear that. Jesus repeatedly preached the word and commanded his disciples to do the same. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Mark 1, 38 and 39, but he said to them, let us go to the next town that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth to preach God's truth, to preach the word. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. He was going from synagogue to synagogue. He was preaching the gospel. He was ministering to them spiritually. They could hear what God was saying. In Mark 3, 14, then he appointed 12, we'll get this, that they might be with him and then that, they might send, that he might send them out to what? Preach. It's powerful. You know, preaching gets a little bit of a negative connotation to it, or has gotten that. The preacher, 
Preaching is God's means of saving people's souls. The spiritual healing that comes through the preaching of the gospel. So the disciples continue to do the same thing throughout the book of Acts. We are commanded as believers to do the same thing. The power in the preaching of the gospel. God has ordained that. So in Mark 16, we have these from the gospel of Mark at the end. Later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table. Now, let me, let me stop a minute, just a thought. I know that most of you in this room know that. I know that I know that. That we are to preach the gospel. We are to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves people from their sins. So I would just ask you, as I have to examine my own heart, are you doing that? Are you proclaiming throughout? I like that Mark says, preach to every creature. I say, practice on your dog. Practice on your cat. But practice it. Be prepared. So when someone comes, because God has ordained that through the preaching of the foolishness of the message preached, people's lives are saved. How did you get saved? How did I get saved? How did I become back to Christ? It was through hearing the gospel again. When we sing these songs, yet not I, but Christ through me, we sing those songs, we realize what God did was so absolutely incredible that when I stand before his throne, there he's going to receive me as himself. He's going to receive me in his love. I'm going to stand before the throne unashamed. I'm sitting here standing in the front row worshiping the Lord and thinking, what's that going to be like to stand before the throne of God presented faultless before his throne with exceeding joy by Jesus? See, that's the gospel. That's, the, that's what God has in, in heart for every single person that we ever meet, to see them saved through the power of the gospel. And so he says to them, he appeared to the 11, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe is condemned. Mark 16, again, he goes on, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs, amen. Now, God confirms it. I don't know how that works, but Jesus said when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is God's voice to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment to the unbeliever's heart. He does that. How? Preaching the gospel. In Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, of God, for it is the power of God to salvation for how many? For everyone who what? Believes. For the Jew first, the priority in God's plan, the Jew, and also for the Greek. What, and then in Romans chapter 10, what shall I say? And what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now, that's not the word of faith movement claiming a need. That's the word. There's this word that God says, by faith we've been saved by grace through faith. By putting my trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm saved from my sin. Now and forever. And so, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto, it's linear, unto salvation, this choice that's being made. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whew. 
It's incredible. And we've been given this message, a simple, understandable message that actually translates people from the kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of his dear son. That takes their soul from condemnation and death and launches it into life and forgiveness and righteousness that God gives to us as his gift through the Holy Spirit. How then shall they call on him in whom they have, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. It says there, and Jesus preached the word to them. Preached it. And he marveled. And even in the rest of his ministry, he also was teaching. Both combined. Preaching is teaching and teaching is preaching, if you will. He says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. What did he do? Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. The word of God, the proclamation of truth. In Mark 6, 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. So he began to teach them many things, bringing the word of God. He preached the word. He taught the word. Mark 14, 49, I was dead. He's, and he's on trial. So I was daily with you in the temple. What was I doing? I was teaching. You heard it. You know what I had to say. So number one, the power of the preaching of the gospel. Secondly, the power of the, power of the faith of a friend. I love this about this story. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was, who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. <laughs> I just love the picture. So when they had broken through the roof, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When they couldn't get to Jesus, their faith, their desire for their friend to get him to Jesus, they became very resourceful. They began to figure, how can we get him before Jesus? I think for us as believers, that should be our prayer. How can we get these people, this person before Jesus? Lost in sin. So they dig up the hardened clay tiles and the straw, and the debris, and the dust, and the dirt starts going everywhere. Now, if this was Peter and Andrew's house being torn apart, I don't think they were smiling. But I think Jesus was. He's looking up and go, cool. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if cool goes with Jesus, but it goes with a hippie, okay? <laughs> now, houses usually have the, out, and when we were in Nepal, we saw this right there for five months. They have staircase outside that, that goes up onto the roof. The roof is almost like, a, like a, a play, another, another floor in the house. And there they put their laundry and dry it. There you get up there and gather on, on, at, during night. And so these men were motivated. Now, the question I have sometimes is, were they just sick and tired of carrying them around? Maybe. We gotta, let's get into Jesus and we don't have to carry him around anymore. So these four guys, motivated, one of them has this crazy idea and they go for it. They climb the stairs with their friend. You can imagine that. These are usually narrow stairs. So they're figuring out how to get up there and they get up on the roof and they're carrying him and they, he's right down underneath. Okay. And they start digging. 
You see, they cared for him. They have seen Jesus, so they were thinking, if we can just get him, Jesus can heal him. The difficulties would not dissuade them from getting their friend down to Jesus. And I think we need to understand that also. That as the, the power of the faith of a friend, as a believer, who are your friends? Don't be dissuaded. Though they may not know Christ, they know you. They hear you. They look to you. And God will use your life to get them before Jesus. To get them where you know they need to be. You see, in Proverbs 17, 17, a few verses on friend. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. In other words, when there's adversity, thank, thankful for the brother. But it also means if you've got a brother, you're probably going to have adversity because he's your brother. <laughs> so there's that connection. Proverbs 18, 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You can say that definitely is Jesus. Proverbs 27, 9. Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. You see, as believers, we're supposed to have answers. The world is looking for answers. And so our relationship with the unbeliever gives opportunity for us to speak these things into their lives, give them counsel as God would give us the wisdom from his word, help them. And not only one way, it's two-way. People also can help us. The unbeliever can be a part of our life and help us in understanding things. And I've found that many times. You know this one well, Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. If you have a, those good friends, you know it's sharpened. Sharpens your life. David had lots of enemies. But David had a friend who loved him as his own soul. Are you not thankful for those who love you as their own soul? I'm thankful for my wife, Charlotte, my best friend next to Jesus. Just people there. And David, he had a lot of heartache, but he had Jonathan. Heartache is when friends start to show up. And these friendships, the power of the faith of a friend. Friends that believe in us. Friends that are there to help us. In 1 Samuel it says, and David, So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Now this is Jonathan's dad, the king. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, rose, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And later on in David's life, as he's, at, he's then on his own, and it tells us that he strengthened himself in the Lord. That rela- our relationship with our friendships strengthen us, but then they also help us to when we need to strengthen ourselves, we begin to be able to do that because of friendships. And, so, and, and Jonathan was, a, was, a, was David's best friend, a deep, loving relationship. Now, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Whose faith 
It says their faith. At minimum, it's the four men. What is their, what is, was it their faith that leads to their friend's healing? That's a good question. Or was it a man's faith? It's a good question. But at minimum, their faith, these four men, got their friend to Jesus that he might be healed. So we can go back and forth on whose faith they see. At least the four of them, maybe the fifth also. But either way, they knew it wasn't their faith that he needed. He needed his own faith in Jesus. He needed to get before Jesus. And I can picture the friends as they're tearing apart the roof. And then they let Jesus, they let their friend down. And there he is. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I say, no, no. Heal them. Well, just heal. Oh, what? what are you talking about? Heal them. In, the, in those days, and even today, death, disease and death were viewed as a consequence of man's sinfulness. Healing was predicated on God's forgiveness. But Jesus made it clear, note this, he made it clear that all sickness is, that all, not all sickness is a result or the consequence of sin. Do I understand that? I don't get it. But that's the truth. So you're sick because there's sin in your life? Jettison that immediately. And ask the Lord to show you what's going on. In John chapter 9, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. God has a plan and a purpose. Do I understand? I don't. Why doesn't God heal everyone? I don't know. But there are these shysters who make a lot of money that God wants you to be healed. Why aren't they going to the hospitals and healing everyone? Why aren't they? You see, it doesn't add up to reality. There are certainly connections between a physical health, the physical health of the body, and sinfulness. A person who drinks excessively will ultimately pay the price physically. That's just, that's just the deal. So there are those connections. People came to Jesus for many, many reasons. Many selfish reasons, even for us in our own lives. I would say, so be it. Just let's get them to Jesus. Let's get myself to Jesus. Let's get our eyes on him. Let Jesus capture our hearts. Let's get them to you and let Jesus capture their hearts. Because God wants to speak to them personally in their difficulties, in their problems, in their sin. He wants to speak to them as, as only he can to heal their lives. But they got to get to Jesus. A friend may not be seeking the forgiveness of his or her sins. But they are seeking some reprieve of peace. Some grasp of meaning. Some glimmer of hope. The world is filled 
with brokenness. And so people might be coming for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motives. They've got something in their life that Jesus wants to meet them right there in those things. We just got to get them to Jesus. We got to get our eyes and their eyes on Jesus. The first priority is always a person's eternal destiny in believing the gospel. Always. That's the ultimate foundation for everything else. But the road to that destiny, in most cases, is never a direct route. God is working to draw them to himself through the things that are going on in their lives. You know, sometimes they say, oh, Lord, would you just heal them? Well, that might be the worst thing that could ever happen in their lives because God's using that to draw them to Christ so they might be saved through the gospel. And then everything else begins to be changed in their lives from the inside out, not the outside in. That's how God works. Aren't you thankful for that? When we look at the messes in our families, we look at the messes in the world we live, we have to come back and realize we got to get them to Jesus where they can meet him and see him. You know the word son? It said son, your sins are forgiven. It's a very affectionate term. And that's how Jesus is. Son, affectionate, tender, as he always is with the afflicted and with us too. And our faith in Jesus expresses itself with a tenderness and care and authenticity and a sensitivity that God loves them and Jesus is there for them. So whose faith? I believe it's their faith at a minimum. What faith? It's very simple. It's faith in Jesus, the exact opposite of the scribes. Theirs was faulting Jesus, completely opposite, putting faith in Christ. So instead of that faith, they were persistently finding fault with Jesus. It says there, verse 6, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus with themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? These teachers of the law were offended at Jesus over and over and over again. They certainly had a responsibility to make sure what Jesus, that he's the real deal. His teaching is the real. But Jesus gave them every possible evidence as to who he is. The problem with these is in their hearts. Jesus says in Matthew this story, knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? They hated Jesus. They wanted nothing. They, would, they want Jesus out of the way. Their spiritual pride and self-righteousness hardened their hearts. And it, bear, it always bears the fruit of a critical, judgmental attitude. That's what happens. Pride, self-righteousness leads to critical, critical attitudes. As Mark tracks the growing animosity between Jesus and religious leaders, they became more verbal, more critical, and more confrontational. Until we get in Mark 3, they plotted against him how they might destroy him because of envy. They're looking for faults with which to accuse him. I want to stop a moment. When it comes to our own hearts, we must keep them with all diligence. For out of it springs the issues of life. 
We must be vigilant to not allow our minds to stay critical at others. It's like rottenness to the bones in Proverbs. There is nothing more corrosive than a critical spirit. We are going to have problems with each other. We are going to see each other's faults. None of us are immune from being critical. None of us are immune from finding fault. But may God help us to handle our hearts biblically. Number one, get it right with God if it's sin in your heart. Repent and thank God for his forgiveness. Or go to the person with an open mind, a humble heart, and a listening ear. I find that listening, James even says it, be quick to hear and slow to speak. It's so easy to be quick to speak and slow to hear. I find that if there can be a little more time taken to listen, it helps to be able then again to understand, to receive, to forgive, or to ask forgiveness. So go to the person or go to a person who can do something about it. Not to anyone else who knows nothing about it. It's called gossip. God help us. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a talebearer are like chasty trifles, and they go down to the innermost part. When we're talking about someone else critically, not having gone to them, somehow our sinful fallen nature likes it to hear something. But it starts to affect us. It's digested. Begins to cast shadows over someone that we knew nothing like that about before. I'm speaking for me as well as I hope for some of you who just need this, this, this admonition, if you will. Let us be quick to listen. Let us be careful in how we handle these things. Open rebuke is better than carefully concealed love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He who covers his transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. God help us. Ephesians puts it this way. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. Think about what you say. Think about what I say that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It grieves God's heart by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. God help us, amen. I've got lots of flaws about which you will be accurately critical. But I would ask for your patience and mercy. And I know you would ask the same. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now verse 8, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? He knew the wickedness of their hearts, and he called them to account in it. These scribes were trapped in that house, and they were also trapped before Jesus and couldn't get out. So Jesus calls them to account for who they are. They were right 
in that only God can forgive sins. Only God can. But they were dead wrong in saying that Jesus was blaspheming. He was not. Their evil intentions and this same charge of blasphemy was what ultimately led them to arrest and execute Jesus. Friend, you can't be only half right about Jesus. He is either who he's claiming to be, the forgiver of sins, or he's not. Today's more enlightened so-called Bible scholars deny that Jesus ever claimed to be God. Yet Jesus' own enemies understood this was exactly what he was claiming. In John chapter 10, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself God. His enemies understood exactly what he was saying. And Bible scholars, they don't seem to understand that. Do not make the same mistake about Jesus. Jesus claimed to be God and demonstrated the same by the rising from the dead. If you seek God's forgiveness for your sin, and only God can forgive sin, it's only offered through the finished work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth on the cross for the sin of the world. It's not another Jesus. There's not another gospel. Jesus said, if you believe not that I am he, you will die in your sin. There are other Jesus that you can choose to believe in. And I know, I'm, for the most part, I'm not speaking to you, but we're praying as we think about the gospel, and we think about our friends, and we think about what they're caught up in. We think about many churches now that have fallen prey to these, deceptives, these deceptions of the devil. There is the Jesus of Mormonism. There is the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, but neither are they, either are they the Jesus that is God, the incarnate word. So 1 John, he writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits where they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. He came, God himself manifested in the flesh. If they deny that, it's not the same Jesus. And that Jesus, whoever it is, cannot forgive sin. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming. Anti could mean the same as a, a similar or opposed to. And is now already in the world. The final thought, the power of the forgiveness of God, which is, e which is easier to say in verse 9 to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your home. Immediately he rose, took up his bed, and went out into the presence of them all. They're all amazed. They're all out of their minds. And glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The point here is, what's easier to say? It's easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Way easier. Because no, you can't prove anything. There's no objective thing about it. You're just speaking. But to say, arise, take up your bed, that can be proved objectively. <laughs> and so, 
What's easy to say? It's much harder to say, arise, take every bed and walk, because if the person doesn't get up and walking, you're a, sh- you're a liar or whatever. You're not who you claim to be. Isn't that fantastic? In other words, Jesus meets the greater need, the healing, the spiritual forgiveness of sin, by using the lesser need to draw the attention to who he is. He's the one who can do it. He can forgive sins. So this forgiveness is the greatest need through whom Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, we receive God's forgiveness. It meets the greatest need with the greatest cost to bring about the greatest freedom and the greatest blessing. Power on earth to forgive sins. The healing of the man's body was proof positive of the authority Jesus had to forgive sins. Over and over and over demonstrate. But the healing of his body, but the ultimate sign is the raising of his own body from the dead. The forgiveness of God is declared, questioned, validated, and confirmed. Indeed. I want to close by sharing with you a beautiful snapshot that I was first shown when taking an inductive Bible study class with Dan Finfrock. Many of you have taken that class. We haven't done it for a long time, but he's with Intensive Care Ministries. This was one of the passages that we were dissecting. But it reminded me of this little story that I read recently. Mr. Green peered over his fence and noticed that the neighbor's little boy was in his backyard filling in a hole. Curious about what the youngster was up to, Mr. Green asked, what are you doing, Johnny? Tearfully, little Jimmy replied, my goldfish died and I've just buried him. That's an awfully large hole for a goldfish, isn't it? Mr. Green said. Putting down the last bit of earth, patting down the last bit of earth, little Joe replied, that's because he's in your cat. Sorry, cat lovers. <laughs> That's not the snapshot. Here's the snapshot. A believer's death is entrance in the immediate, ultimate, and finally healing for all eternity. Four men lowering their friend into a hole that had just been dug. Pallbearers. Their only hope is in Jesus. And the only hope in death is Jesus who conquered death, hell, and the grave. For that person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, when our bodies are lowered into the ground, we've already been resurrected and met Jesus. When we put our loved one in the ground who has died knowing Christ, you want to talk about the ultimate? That's the ultimate. And thus it puts, the, again, the, the weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ as our responsibility for all people to come to know Christ. Jesus, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of, my, of the Father who sent me, that all of all he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. It just brings me back again to what I was just thinking when I was standing that last song. Here we are worshiping. What's it going to be like to stand before the throne? I mean, real in reality. That's what we have. He's going to raise us up in the last day. I don't know what your theology is eschatologically, but this, we all agree, one day 
we shall stand before him and be with him for all eternity, serving him, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who died for my sins, rose again for my justification, and is waiting to come back and take me to himself, that where he is, I can be too. Yeah. We know if our earthly house is tent is dissolved, we have a building of God not made with hands, eternal in heaven. And for this we groan, earnestly desiring to be delivered. Not that we be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality might be swallowed up in life. 1 Corinthians 15. So the gospel, power on earth to forgive sins, the power of preaching the gospel, the power of the faith of a friend, and the power of the forgiveness of God. What a great message we have in the gospel. Have the worship team come in. Would you stand, please? And we'll, we'll sing a song together and I'll close. Now let's just bow our hearts now as they're coming out and lift up in our minds, in our prayers, our loved ones who don't know Jesus Christ. Just in your thoughts right now, your prayer to God, name them as you think of them. Just lift up their name to God, interceding for them, Lord. You draw them to yourself. You deliver them from the blinding influence of the devil. You deliver them from the confusion of this world, the confusion of the devil. You deliver them, Lord, through just a sliver of light, a, a, a truth they heard, a scripture they knew. Even as we pray right now at this time, what is it, 10:13 on Sunday afternoon, that these loved ones of ours would come, you'd grant them repentance and acknowledge the truth, that they may come to their senses, Escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's our prayer right now. We lift those to you, Lord. Meet them, God. We pray for those who are in their lives, circumstances are going on. You'd use them to draw them to you in repentance, faith, salvation. In repentance and returning back to you as prodigals. Our prayers are hearing them, Lord, right here from this room this morning. 